Great to be here with you, uh, whether you're here on our Canandaigua campus or online campus or at Hopewell campus. Uh, last night, I was heading out of one of our grocery stores here in town, and uh, a couple who typically would have been on our Canandaigua campus, but uh, due to life situation and the pandemic, have been a part of our online campus. It was like it was like long lost family seeing each other again for a split moment, and so very thankful for those who are able to participate, whether here or online, or or certainly uh, love the folk at our uh, Hopewell campus, and so it's just a, a privilege to be able to uh, come together to worship uh, wherever we find ourselves. had a friend who just after last service pointed out, he said, I wasn't able to come last Sunday, and we, uh, we were worshiping on Wednesday night as a family, and so I thought how great it is that they're able to do that. God is, is working uh, in our church, uh, and when I say in our church, that means us. He's working in us. In fact, it probably didn't translate much online, but in this service in particular, I thought some people were going to practice the rapture uh, during worship. I was in the back, and I thought, man, they're ready to take off, and uh, sort of exciting to be a part of that. We're in this series, Metamorphosis. Uh, We're studying Romans 9 through 16. In the fall, we looked at Romans 1 through 8, talking about the transforming power of God in the life of a believer. And this morning, we're going to look particularly at this understanding that the victorious life of a believer that's offered us in Jesus Christ really has this one crucial question that we have to answer in order to enter into, and that is, who is the owner? More specifically, who's the owner of our life? Like, who owns us? Now, here's the reality. You can answer that in a number of different ways, and I was sort of thinking through that. And one of the ways we could answer it is we could treat God like he's, he's a timesharer. You know, you know what a timeshare is, right? Maybe some of you have one. Uh, you know, you, you go there once or for a week or two a year, and you act like you own the place, but you don't, right? In fact, you enjoy it for that time. You leave, someone else comes in, and they act like they own it for a week or two. And, you know, usually there's a, there's a closet you can't even get into. You know, there's always that one closet that sort of has the stuff that isn't yours. And, and we can treat God like a timeshare. You know, that, that we, we come to, to receive Christ as our, as our Savior, but when we talk about the Lordship of Christ in our life, we say, you know what, God, you, you can you come and you can stay, but only when I sort of want you there. You can go into the rooms that I've sort of opened up for you, but that closet right there is sort of locked, you know? That, that's not for you right now. The other way we could really deal with God is sort of treating him like a renter. Now, a renter has a lot more, lot more freedom. I mean, you rented the place. You get to move some of your furniture in. Uh, you may be able to paint a wall or two if you ask for permission. And, and sometimes I, I find that we can treat God like a renter. God, I'm yours sort of. You know, like, like if you want to paint a wall, you need to ask me. If you want to do something really, you got you to ask me for these things. You know, when you're renting a piece of property, it may seem like a good thing because after all, if something breaks, it's, it's the owner's responsibility. But the problem is when you treat God like the renter, when something breaks, guess who the owner is? It's you. And I don't know about you, but when you try to fix those things that only God can fix, I, I tend to make it even worse. By the way, that's a true metaphor in my own home as well. <laughs> it's just sort of the way it works. But, but, but the reality of it is life only works the way that God intends it to work when he's the owner. Ownership is sort of an interesting thing. You don't have to ask permission to paint a wall or even move a wall. You can do those things. And so the work of God transforming us really happens when we give God the ownership of our life. It's only when God's the owner that we can experience the victorious Christian life. 
And this, after all, is the only reasonable response to God. Well, we're in Romans chapter 11. And Romans chapter 11, for, for most of the chapter, really continues what Paul has been laying out in Romans 9 and 10, and that is God's salvific plan. And in Romans chapter 11, he talks about the fact that he has a continuing plan for even the nation of Israel. And he it does this inner interplay between the Gentiles and the Jews as far as being grafted in and these type of workings of God. We're not going to spend much time uh, looking at that, but we're going to jump down really to the end of the chapter, Romans 11, 33 through 36. And in Romans 11, 33 through 36, Paul really leads us in this, in this section of worship for the wisdom of God. As Paul ended Romans 5 through 8, he ended it by celebrating God's unshakable love for his people. And here in Romans 11, uh, what Paul does is he, he really celebrates God's marvelous plan for all of humankind. So he ends his discussion by proclaiming God's glory. Look at Romans 11, 33 through 36 with me. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In short, who can penetrate the mind of God? I mean, think about it. Have you ever tried to think about the universe and just how it just expands. Your mind just blows. It's a mind-blowing moment when you, when you try to do that. The same thing's true. God's ways are, are so beyond our ways. His, his thoughts are so beyond our thoughts that, that we can comprehend that which God has, has lowered down, made accessible to us through his word. But there's so much about God and his thinking, but so beyond us. Have, have you found that to be true? And, and so Paul says, who, who can penetrate the mind of God? And by the way, he says, and he doesn't need to consult us before he acts. Like, he doesn't have to ask our opinion. Now, by the way, if he did, we probably would choose differently sometimes, right? Like, like, like God says, I really want to teach you something really powerful. And doesn't that sound exciting until you're in the middle of it? Because how does he teach us things? He takes us through adversity, right? The scripture's really clear on that. It's like we all want to grow in Christ, but we really don't want to sweat much. And, and, but it's okay, because he says, I, I don't really ask your opinion all that much. I do what's best for you. I do what's best for you. And Paul's pointing these things out to us. And, and I believe he's really encouraging us that at a certain point, we've really just got to stop questioning. And, and we've got to stop demanding and, and, and simply believe in worship. I don't mean disengage the mind. In fact, we're going to look at Romans 12, verse 2, that talks about our mind. He's not talking about disengaging our mind. He's just talking about trust. And so in Romans 11, 33 through 36, is this beautiful hymn of praise where Paul shares with us this proclamation of the very powerful wisdom of God and, and the mercy of God to all people. And this is fitting because Romans 11, 36 ends sort of this, this section of, of doctrine in, the, in, the, in Paul's letter to the Romans. 
from Romans 1.18 through 11.36, we have this, this doctrinal uh, writing of, of, of salvation, how we come to Christ, and, and why God offers us this amazing relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And what follows from Romans 12 through Romans 16 is some practical instruction. So if we, if we know that in Christ we've been justified, now what's that mean? It means we've made right with God. That's what salvation is. But we also know that salvation is, is growing in Christ, becoming more like him, that's sanctification. And one day we'll be glorified, glorifications, when we actually see Jesus face to face and the work is completed. If we understand these things, it should practically play out in the way we live our lives. Another way of saying that is that Christian doctrine must always lead to Christian ethics. That we don't just study the scripture to know the scripture, we study the scripture to know God and make him known. The transformation is this metamorphosis made by God in the spirit of the believer. In other words, in other words, it's shown in practical ways in our daily living. I like the way Douglas Moo states it. He's a commentator and a, and a theologian. Listen to what he writes. He writes, the Bible knows nothing about a theology that remains on the theological level. All theology, all teaching about God has implications for life. For when we learn about God, we learn about ultimate reality. And we cannot simply sit back and contemplate that reality. It changes the way we think about ourselves, our place in the world, and our purpose for being. Theology, in other words, includes in its nature an implicit call to transform one's life and to adjust one's thinking and acting in accordance with the truth of God in Christ. The gospel not only saves us from God's wrath, but also transforms us into the very image of Christ. So we discover in the following two verses, as we look at all that God has done for us, as we look at all the teaching that, that Paul has given us in his letter from Romans 1 all the way through Romans 11, what is the commitment of a believer? What is, what, is, what is required of a believer in light of all that God has done? So look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul writes of the mercies of God. And the mercy here is, is plural in the Greek. And the noun mercy occurs seven times in Romans 9 through 11. The verb occurs twice, and the synonym compassion appears twice. And you, you go, well, why point this out? Because, well, the, the hermeneutical principle of repetition is taking place here. Now, what, what is that? Hermeneutics is our principles in which we study and apply Scripture. And one of those principles that we understand as believers is when we in Scripture see things repeated, they're repeated because it means pay special attention to this. There's something here you don't want to miss. And the repeating of the mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy of God over and over again, especially in chapters 9 through 11, it is meant for us to put special attention toward that and to understand that it's really that it's the mercy of God which is his motivation for all that he does in the world. That God is indeed a, a merciful God. That God loves and he cares. 
and he's present, and he's working. And it's the very mercy of God that, that, that Paul has described from Romans 1 through 11. And then in verse 12, he says, in view of this, understanding all that God has done for us, how do we respond to that? What is the reasonable response? And, and Paul gives it to us. He says, here's how a believer is to respond to God's mercy. He shares a couple of things. First is this. Believers are to dedicate themselves to God. They're to dedicate themselves to God. Look again at Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I love the way the, the Philip's translation of the Bible words things for these two verses. And so we're going to look at it a little bit too. The Phillips translation reads this way. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice consecrated to him and acceptable to him. I love the way that that's worded. We offer, we, we present ourselves to God. And it's interesting because there's another chapter in Romans that really talks a lot about offering and presenting and that's chapter 6 of Romans, in which it's, it's used as a statement and also as a command. And in Romans chapter 6, it speaks specifically about sanctification. Now, sanctification, again, what's that mean? It means being Christ-like. Now, how are we to be Christ-like? Well, we're not to become gods. We, we, don't, we don't take on his divinity. We become Christ-like by expressing Christ-like love. We become Christ-like by being transformed in our character. We become Christ-like by, by making sure our priorities and our purpose are in alignment with that of Jesus. And so Romans 6 directs us toward this, but here too in Romans 12, the emphasis is on sanctification. It's on becoming like Jesus. Specifically, what Paul's going to address from Romans 12, 3 on is how a sanctified person is to live out their Christian life in service. And, and how they're to do it in relation to other believers, how they're to do it in relationship to the people who are yet to become believers, not believers yet, how they're to do it to government officials. Yes, Paul goes there. And, and here's one. And, and Paul even goes to the place to say, how do we relate to those other believers who have different perspectives than we do? What's fascinating to me is he wrote this 2,000 years ago, and you would have thought he wrote it today. It, it amazes me how advanced we feel we are from those 2,000 years ago. I think we are technologically. I don't think we are socially. I don't know if mankind's actually moved that much further. Uh, but these issues are so germane to where we find ourselves today, and we're going to be heading into there in the weeks to come. But before he deals with the topic of service and relationships, he has to, to, to deal with this core commitment, and that is we need to offer ourselves to God. There must be a complete surrender of the person, of the body, of our whole personhood. Our mind and flesh are to be given to God. A Christian's no longer uh, themselves, you know, belong to themselves. They belong to God. In other words, God is the owner. And that's why he uses this word offer, and some translations present, because it comes right out of the temple language. The priests offered sacrifices. They, they presented sacrifices to God. And we're to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. 
I like what one commentator pointed out. He said, the problem, however, with a living sacrifice is it's able to crawl off the altar. Ever been there? <laughs> I'm all yours. And, well, yeah. and, and so there is that reality that's here, but we offer ourselves to God. And when we do, what's the result? Well, lives that are becoming more holy and moral and, and pleasing to God. And such a commitment, he says, is spiritual and reasonable because God has done so much for us because of these mercies of God we offer ourselves to him. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, along with talking about these, this commitment that we're made, dedicating ourselves to God, and the, and the second thing we're going to look at in a minute, really is talking about this reasonable act of worship. And I find it really amazing to me that the Bible speaks so much about worship. That, but, but when it speaks of worship, and here in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it, it really clarifies worship as well. Worship is not merely or even mainly what we do during a weekend worship service. Now, I want to I be clear on that. Uh, Maddie, earlier in the service, prayed an amazing prayer where, where she just lifted up to God and said, this isn't just a Sunday thing. We're to worship you every day of the week. Like, like we don't come to church. We gather as the church. This building ain't the church. It's just a building we set aside for God. We are the church. Come on now. And wherever we go, we can have church because we're the church. Think about it. Now, understand this. The Bible does talk about the it commands, but it mandates us gathering together. I'm glad we do. Uh, for months, by the way, I, I preached to a camera. And we were just only online. And so thankful we have technology to do that. But let me tell you something. It is really nice to have you out there. Online people, I love you. But, man, it is so much better when there's people sitting here and I get to, get to have the family around me. There's this power there. But it's not merely or even mainly a weekend service thing. See, worship that honors God involves the mind. And it involves the mind daily, but, it, but even when we gather here, it involves the mind. I think it's interesting. When we look at worship in Scripture, it, it doesn't talk about whether it should be accompanied by an organ or a guitar. I don't think God really cares. You might care, but God doesn't care. And that's the reality of it. But you know what? God does want us to engage our mind when we're worshiping. When we're singing, I think he cares about the emotion. But I think he cares all the more about, are we thinking through the words we're singing? Do we believe them? Or here's one, and this happens sometimes when we're singing. God, I think I believe that. Help me believe that. Help that become a part of who I really am in relationship to you. So worship is, is about engaging the mind. It's about a a daily walk with God. It's offering, presenting ourselves to the Lord. And that's what we do when we're dedicating ourselves to God, when we're giving ourselves to him. But as believers, there's another thing we need to do in response to God's mercy. Not only to be dedicated to God, but believers who are dedicated to God are to be consecrated to him. Look again at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're to be dedicated, we're to be consecrated. To be dedicated is to say, God, we belong to you. To be consecrated is to say, since we belong to you, you can do with me whatever you will. I'm yours. And as a living sacrifice, we belong to God, are useful to him for his divine purposes. Now, how are believers to be consecrated? Well, we find it right there in, in, in verse 2. First of all, we're not to be conformed to the world. 
Or I like how the Phillips translation puts it. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Think about that for a minute. That's a good word picture, isn't it? How many times do you feel the pressure of the world trying to squeeze you into its mold? Trying to tell you this is the way you should think. This is the way you should act. This is what's best. And we're not to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold. The transformed Christian has a posture of resistance to any values or goals or, or activities contrary to God's ways. If a person surrenders their ways to the world, will what? Will be conformed into the world's image. And the believer is not to be molded by the world. But we're to be what? Transformed by the renewing of our mind. Interesting. A lot of times in church we talk about our heart being changed. But I don't think we talk enough about our mind being changed. The way we think, and our thinking directs the way we act. That word transformed is the, is the, is the Greek word metamorphos, which we get our title for the series, Metamorphosis. The meta means radical. The morph means change. And so this transformation, this, this metamorphosis is a radical change that God does in our life. But is it instantaneous? It's continual. God's continuing to do a work in us and, and transform us. I like how the Philip's translation reads here. It says, let God remold your minds from within. So don't let the world mold you. Let God mold you from within in your mind. The thoughts of a believer's mind are, are to be renewed. And this is crucial to Paul's teaching on the Christian life. When we come to Christ, we're transformed. We enter into a new realm, a, a new identity. That happens instantaneously. Nevertheless, our minds are not immediately changed. Again, have you found that to be true? Your thinking is, is being transformed? Our, our thinking still tends to follow what? The well-worn-out paths of life that we've always done. They seem to, to always want to go to that place that, that, that we've always thought. And so it's only through the transforming of our mind that, that God begins to change our our thinking. Thus, we're called to engage in a lifelong process of changing. And I know in my own life, my stinking thinking has changed. Like God's doing a work in me. But there are still elements where I realize it hasn't always totally changed yet. Like if someone cuts me off on the road, my first thought isn't, oh, Jesus loves you. Like that, that's, a, that's, that's one of those that I'm still being tested in, to be honest with you. When someone's riding my backside, there's still that part of me that goes, you know what? I got an old truck. I got a new car. I think I'm going to slam on the brakes. They probably got better insurance than me. I, I can get maybe a new truck out of this. It'll be a beautiful moment. No, yeah, actually I do. I do. <laughs> but that's better. I don't do it. I don't say it. Yeah, I'm still thinking it. But God is transforming my thinking. There are many other things where God has transformed my thinking, and I do think differently. There, there are certainly times where I'm out and about, and someone's not behaving the way that they ought. My first thought isn't what it used to be, was I wish God would give me permission to slap them into place. Come on now. Some of you out there are like, Max, you're like, I never think that. Well, that's you. Get over yourself. The rest of us, under, you know what I'm talking about. But there is times where my thoughts are, oh, Lord, be with them. I haven't walked in their shoes. I don't know what they're dealing with. 
God is working in me. It's a process, church, but it's a beautiful process. God is faithful to it. The challenge is, will we be faithful to it? The believer is continually being molded from within by the power of God. Now, why are we being transformed? Well, again, a believer is transformed to show, to exemplify the Christ-like life. In fact, Philip's translation uh, for the rest of verse 2 reads this way. So that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves toward the goal of true maturity. Let's unpack this a bit. The end of the verse speaks of this, this person being transformed by the renewing of our mind and, and how this renewing of our mind allows us to discern the practices, the way that God has called us to walk. It, it's interesting, in the Greek text, it could be translated actually that the good, the pleasing, and the perfect are, are guidelines to determine what God's will is for our life. Now think about that for a minute. How many of you have asked the question, what does God want me to do in this situation? Maybe you even ask the question, what is God's one perfect plan for my life? I, I know I've asked such questions. Many times have I asked this question. God, just direct me here. And, and yet, the scripture tells us there, there's some questions we really can ask. They've been helpful in my life in really determining these things. The first question is this. Find out what is morally right and consequently will produce a good effect on others. That's a good question. What does God want me to do here? Well, what is morally right, and what would be of greater benefit to those around me? Can I bless someone by making this decision? The second one is this. Find out what is acceptable to God. How do we find out what's acceptable to God? We've got to be in his word. It's interesting to me when people will come up and they'll say, hey, Craig, what do you think God wants me to do here? And I'll say, well, what do you think God wants you to do? Have you, what, what, have you prayed about it? Have you been in his word? And, and they're like, well, no, but I just want you to tell me. Like, no, 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 no. You got to do the hard work, right? You got to do the, you got to be, be in this work. There, there's sometimes where people have told me, I think God wants me to do this. And I'd say, I don't think he does. And they go, well, how do you know? And I go, because it's not scriptural. If God wants you to correct someone, he always wants you to tell the truth in love. When someone says to me, God's calling me to tell that person off, I can go, no, he's not telling you to do that. How do you know? Well, so what is, what is acceptable to God? And the third one is this. Find out how we can use our opportunities, our gifts, and our resources to produce the greatest effect for God's kingdom. Now, this sort of was difficult for me because I'm a very black and white person by nature. That's sort of the way I'm wired. Anyone out there wired like that? It's taken me a long time to admit there's gray in the world. And I now admit there is gray. I just don't like it. You know, that's as far as I've gotten in this journey, you know. And so I thought if there's two goods, like you answer, you ask those questions and you're like, man, there's door A and door B, and they're both fit in that category really well. And I would drive myself mad going, but there has to be one better answer. Okay, now here you go. It's taken me a long time to be able to say this. Sometimes there's just two really good answers and you get to choose. Like you work your way through it and you're like, you know what? They're both like, they're, they're right. They're, 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 they're acceptable by God. They have great opportunity. And people say, what do you do? I say, just step out and do something. Just walk through one of the doors then. If that, thank God that he's giving you a choice. Walk through it. I don't think when we're seeking God's will that most of the time the problem is that we choose 
I think most of the time we're, we're in trouble because we, we won't allow ourselves to choose at all. When we've asked those questions, man, walk in the freedom of what God has. I don't believe when but God's trying to tease us. When we seek his will with all of our heart, we're going to find it. We're going to find it. We have two equal doors, and you walk through one of them. That's going to be the right, God's will for you at that time. That's going to be God's will for you at that time. By the way, if you're as black and white as I am and you can't see gray, that's going to blow your mind. That's okay. Just, just let it sit there for a little bit. Let it sit there for a little bit. But if we, we find these things out, we decide what becomes, what really is God's will for us, and we, we walk in these things. Now, let's be honest. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. And so I want to review a bit. Let's review a bit. What is the basic commitment required of a believer in light of all that God has done? How are believers to respond to God's mercy? They're to dedicate themselves to God. They're to give God ownership. They declare, really acknowledge that he's the owner of our life. And we're to be consecrated to God saying, since you're the owner of my life, you get to do in and through me whatever you desire. Like I'm yours. I'm a living sacrifice. Now, if this is true, how are we to be consecrated? Well, we're not to be conformed to the ways of the world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're to be dedicated to God. I'm yours. We're to be consecrated to God. Do with me and in me and through me all that you will, God. How do I do that? I'm not going to be conformed to the pattern of the world, but I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind, which is a process. And why are we transformed? A believer is transformed to show, to exemplify the Christ-like life. And what is a Christ-like life? It's learning to love like God loves, to have the character of Christ, and to be united with him in purpose and priorities. So a believer is transformed to show, to exemplify this Christ-like life as they test and approve and practice God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, for the next several weeks, we're going to look at the rest of Paul's letter where everything he writes is based on that commitment. There's no way we can do the right thing in relationships and the situations he writes about unless we first dedicate and consecrate ourselves to God. That's the first step. And so for now, just let me ask you one question. Who's the owner? Who's the owner of your life? And even as a believer, are you treating God like a timeshare or a renter? I've done that in my life. It only works when he's the owner. It only works when he's the owner. And so we're going to go into a time of prayer, and I just want to encourage you that God is faithful. He loves us, and wherever you find yourself, he just wants to help you take the next step with him. Just take the next step with him. If it's receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, why not right now? Thank Jesus for dying for your sins, being resurrected for your salvation. Enter into that relationship with him. If you're wrestling with a lordship issue, give, him, give yourself to him as a living sacrifice. And by the way, that's a journey. So I find that I give myself to him and I find I have to continually give myself to him. Anyone else been there? It's like a daily thing. Actually, let me be honest. It's like a throughout the day thing. God, I'm, I'm yours. When there's those moments where something comes to my mind that isn't Christ honoring, I go, Lord, I'm yours. Change that. Change my stinking thinking. Help me think the way you would have me think. You know what? He's faithful to do that. 
You've heard me say this many times. I, I know I'm not what I ought to be, but I thank God I'm not what I used to be. He's working in me. I'm being transformed. And God is a merciful God, a loving God, who invites us on this tremendous journey with him. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for, for loving us so completely. As we've studied uh, Romans 1 through 11, uh, we look at the great work of salvation that you've done, that you're doing, that you're going to do in our life. Allowing us to be made right with you through Jesus Christ. And not just saying that you love us, but demonstrating it on the cross. And for giving each of us that resurrection power in our life. There's a chorus I, I, I just love. It's, it's, it's new to me. It may not be new. But it says that when, when we see the cross, you saw the empty tomb. <laughs> you just see the victory. We sang earlier in service. Lord God, help us walk in that victory. Help us choose you. I pray, Lord God, that we would give you the ownership of our life and that we would learn what that means daily that we would learn what that means throughout the day, that we wouldn't, as living sacrifice, try to crawl off the altar, but, Lord God, we'd remain there and say, Lord, we do belong to you. We exist to, to, to know you and make you known. Have your way in and through us. Change walls if you see fit. Do whatever you want to do. Renew our thinking. And, Lord, the, the world around us would love to squeeze us into its mold, but... You place us as your church here to show a better way, to point to you. And so, Lord, would you transform us in our love? Would you transform us in our character? Would you transform us in our purpose and priorities that we would walk that victorious life offered us in Christ? And we'll give you all the praise. Thank you, Father, that you are faithful even when we're faithless. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name.